I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. Rinda Stepman. And I'm Josh Hammer. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's episode, we've got a diverse array of meaty topics to jump into. Josh will kick us off with a discussion on some of the lessons from Liz Cheney's primary defeat in Wyoming. I'll cover the latest in the ongoing Mar-a-Lago raid saga. Inez will talk to us a bit about the coming new army of IRS agents. And last but not least, Emily will take us home discussing Chinese Communist Party tied TikTok's new U.S. election initiative. With that, let's start off with Josh. Okay, thanks, Ben. Great to be back with all of y'all, as always. So we are recording this on Tuesday, August 23rd. It's a week to the day after Liz Cheney's absolute catastrophic schlacking. I don't really know how else to describe it. She lost by roughly 37 points to Harriet Hageman. That is almost unprecedented for an incumbent and it's really difficult for me to kind of look at this in isolation. I think you have to kind of take away some broader messages. So I had a recent column about this. And what I did in the column was I actually connected it. This is kind of where I'm going to be curious whether you guys agree with this or not. I connected it to a similar defeat for actually George P. Bush, who was Jeb Bush's son. That's George W. Bush's nephew, who was running against uh, the incumbent Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who was a stalwart conservative. And they were running in the Republican primary runoff for Texas AG back in May. And George P. Bush, who's a sitting land commissioner, lost by very shockingly similar margin, something like 36 points. Uh, Ken Paxson, for what it's worth, is, is a strong conservative, but you know he's had various kind of scandals, and there's like a, a, a securities fraud investigation that, uh, frankly, I'm skeptical of the legal merits of that. But that's really neither here nor there. The point is that people on the ballot this year with the name Bush and Cheney lost by very similar margins, 36 to 37%. So I think from kind of a Nat Connie kind of new right kind of forward looking perspective, you have to look at this as a, a, a real repudiation, a real repudiation by the American people and specifically by Republican primary voters of the Bush Cheney era status quo ante. So I, Liz Cheney obviously has a lot of unique personal baggage, uh, to put it mildly, she has spent the last two years kind of Working on the January 6th committee, the this Stalin, you know, this Stalin-esque Stalinist witch hunt, which we've discussed quite a bit on this podcast, Ben in particular, perhaps. And she has alienated, rightfully speaking, lots of her own voters. But I think the broader message here really has to be that we're not going back, that the Republican Party and the voters, the people, the base, the people who decide these elections is sending a very clear message to DC that they are not going to go back to the pre-2016 dead consensus. You know, the phrase dead consensus obviously being a direct reference to this March 2019 First Things Manifesto, in which I believe Saurabh Amari had the lead pen, but it kind of generated a lot of traction at the time. Um, you know, uh, Saurabh Sharma and Nick Solheim kind of in the lead up to their forming of, of the of American moment had a very similar kind of public statement. I think it was, it was entitled, We Are Not Going Back or We Will Not Go Back or something like that. So I kind of view the recent Liz Cheney repudiation in line with the George P. Bush lost in Texas down in May as very much in line with that First Things Manifesto and that Saurabh Sharma American moment aligned we are not going back statement. And in particular, I think what the voters are saying they're not going back to 
is kind of an effete country club republicanism, the kind of republicanism, the kind of Republican Party, frankly, that just focuses on kind of, um, you know, tax cutting, deregulatory, kind of uh, libertarian adjacent economic issues to the exclusion of, of the cultural issues, the civilizational issues, which, which I think, you know, the four of us on this podcast know are kind of ground zero and really the focal point for the median Republican voter. It's also a, re a repudiation, I think, of kind of the foreign policy, the trade, the immigration, just all of the various issues that I think dominated really, uh, you know, decades, honestly, at least since kind of uh, the George H.W. Bush administration through 2016. So at least for a solid 25 years. And I think the voters have just basically had it and they are ready for something new. And, you know, the onus has been and it continues to be on, you know, folks like us and lots of our like-minded peers to try to kind of constructively chart a path forward. But I, I guess I'll just open it up on, on, on that kind of open-ended note. I'm, I'm curious if the three of you uh, agree with kind of this sweeping macro level view or whether you think the Cheney uh, defeat was kind of more of an isolated incident, more focused around her January 6th committee shenanigans. Um, I'll jump in and say, I, I, I guess I broadly agree with what you're saying. I, I don't think that it was just about January 6th and not just about Trump, which is really, I think, the narrative that you hear the most in the media, that this is basically a um, simple proposition, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, right? Um, and I, I think it, it is deeper than that. And, and the reasons that Trump was elected to begin with are, are deeper than that, obviously. Um, and I, I, do, I, I do kind of agree uh, that this is, first of all, the end of some American political dynasties on the left and the right. Um, that really the existence of those dynasties really, I think, underscored the post-Cold uh, War consensus bit, bit that was held between the parties and was increasingly decade after decade uh, out of step with the issues that Americans thought were important, was not addressing the issues that Americans thought were, were important. Um, and I, I think this is very much like, uh, to the extent that there are historical parallels here, we always hear about you know the Weimar Republic or, or whatever from the Atlantic and similar type uh, institutions. I actually think the, the closest historical parallel here would be um, immediately after the founding, there's what's called, historians call the era of good feelings, um, which is kind of a gloss over, uh, over the fact that there had been, this is where the, the original founders were old and, and, and had aged out of direct politics. Um, but there was essentially a unit party in Washington. There were some disagreements, um, but the reason they call it the era of good feelings is because basically everyone in Washington more or less agreed with each other. Um, and, and that led to a populist revolt under Jackson. And I think that's that's largely what we're seeing. Um, we're seeing that to the end of two eras, really. I think in, in the, the micro sense, the era of agreement between the parties that um, arose out of the U.S.'s victory after the Cold War. Um, and, and two, in, in the broader sense, I, I really do think we have seen the end of um, the, globally the era from after World War II, about 1945, through, I guess I would put it, around 2016, right? Um, where you have this, this um, first of all, American hegemony um, through, of course, the Cold War first, but like at the end of it, the, the result of American hegemony, um, this kind of, of liberal order, um, first challenged by communism and then challenged by nothing. Um, and, and of course, I think that that last the last part of it is has a lot to do with how it became um, sort of decrepit in its own right and, and unable to address new challenges. So um, yeah, I, I definitely see this as broader than just Liz Cheney, although I will note just one thing. It's never, I mean, having an absolute and undisguised contempt for your voters is is never going to be like a, a winning political strategy. 
I think uh, there was a, a very clarifying or I should say instructive mistake that's been made by a lot of the media and a lot of the left over the course of the last week, which is to take Liz Cheney's claim at face value that her loss is just about Trump, that her loss is about the stranglehold that Donald Trump has in the Republican Party, which is an easy sort of piece of bait to take if you live in Washington, D.C. and in Manhattan and wherever else. Um, but it's actually so much deeper and broader than that. Like just the really quick way to explain it is that Trump is sort of a litmus test for the political establishment. So if, if you, you know, are, are supportive of the political establishment, um, like with the January 6th committee, it's not just about the fact that you attacked Donald Trump. Certainly it's not because we've seen support for other people like DeSantis is a really good example among Republican voters. They really like DeSantis. We know that voters, you know, had throughout the Trump administration, people who voted for him would say stop tweeting you know every trump voter is not just the hardcore sort of MAGA person um but they are all united in one thing that the political establishment is basically a national emergency um and if you are going to ally with them in any way whatsoever you're out um you are you are not on the side of what's righteous and good anymore and that's the way to understand it but the media has portrayed it obviously in vastly different um it with with vastly different uh, definitions and vastly different um they just don't understand so i think that was a very telling excuse we saw sort of rolled out over the course of the last week and you see the media just taking the talking points of, of a member because they happen to like their position but more importantly um they're still getting this very wrong yeah i mean i think it's interesting this is kind of what emily just said is sort of a good segue into the next segment on the mar-a-lago raid in fact these liz cheney's uh shellacking in wyoming is sort of dovetails perfectly with the fact that consequently of course the political establishment is doing everything they can to destroy the very figure and very movement that she ran against and that she was the antithesis of so on the narrower cheney aspect of this i think it's important to note or one way to frame this is that the congresswoman proved herself to her voters to be more of washington dc than of wyoming and while that may have always been the case obviously given her background it's never been better illustrated both stylistically and substantively than in the jihad that she has helped engage in against Trump, but as a representative of something far greater, which is the tens of millions of Americans who used him as a bulwark against those who believe that they are deplorable and now domestic terrorists and that the full weight of the public and private sectors ought to be used to crush and squash them. Uh, another aspect of this uh, that I think is worth noting is that Cheney herself was a uniquely anti-Republican figure in the sense of the fact that the median Republican voter as Josh often cites, is much more in line with Trump at minimum stylistically, given who his foes are, uh, if not substantively. Certainly on a wide variety of issues, the party, the average voter is much more heterodox than they had been. And we have clearly transitioned away from the Bush-Cheney sort of agenda broadly as a party. However, all that said, the word of caution here is that we still don't see Republican establishmentarians, many of whom have, of course, cleverly adopted the rhetoric of Trump, but not really gone along with the policies, we still don't see them getting primaried and mass. And until that happens, I still think while the voters have shifted, their purported representatives have not. There are circumstances where those who have 
skewed far too far away from where their voters are do face punishment, like in the case of a Cheney here. But there still needs to be mass primarying in my perspective. So you know, this is a victory for the ideas that I think that, that resonate with national conservatives. This is a uniquely anti-national conservative type of figure here uh, getting drubbed in this race. But that said, word of caution is the establishment is still incredibly powerful, strong, and not getting primaried in mass yet. We'll see if that ends up happening. All right, so let's transition now to the Mar-a-Lago raid. And that framing that Emily referenced there of viewing the political establishment as sort of a, a national security threat or like an existential threat essentially to the Republic, naturally, of course, that establishment engages in projection and says that those who call out the tyranny essentially that our ruling regime is trying to impose upon its foes says that they are the real national security threat. And I think that's a framework framework framing in which you ought to see the Mar-a-Lago raid. And there were several major revelations, uh, developments in the last few days that I just want to tick through quickly here, and then we can jump into what the significance of it all is. First being, of course, maybe the biggest story was that the night before we recorded this episode, and we're recording this on Tuesday, uh, the big story was that the Biden White House actually was far more closely engaged in fostering, facilitating this raid than had been reported. Ultimately helping facilitate the raid, despite its claims of no prior knowledge, by waiving President Trump's claims to executive privilege far earlier on in this purported document dispute. So quoting directly from Just the News, who had the original report on this, the Biden White House worked directly with the Justice Department and National Archives to investigate the criminal probe into alleged mishandling of documents, allowing the FBI to review evidence retrieved from Mar-a-Lago this spring and eliminating the 45th president's claims to executive privilege, according to contemporaneous government documents reviewed by Just the News. And apparently one White House lawyer in particular engaged with the FBI, DOJ, and National Archives to convey all the way back in May that President Joe Biden would not object to waiving his predecessor's claims to executive privilege, which, of course, quoting Justin News, opened the door for DOJ to get a grand jury to issue a subpoena compelling Trump to turn over any remaining materials he possessed from his presidency. So the president, President Biden, waived the right of his predecessor to executive privilege, which, of course, creates a whole slew of issues here. Other relevant developments. Judge Reinhardt ruled that the government's claim that the affidavit underlying the Mar-a-Lago raid ought to be sealed was insufficient. And so there's kind of double negatives involved in the language that were used here in Judge Reinhardt's ruling. Uh, but I'll quote directly from it. He says, I cannot say at this point that partial redactions will be so extensive that they will result in a meaningless disclosure. But I may ultimately reach that conclusion after hearing further from the government. And so basically, this whole uh, debate here is the DOJ saying that if we're to redact this document for the public, the document's going to become meaningless. This critical document, because it underlies, of course, the entire warrant and then subsequent raid. Uh, what Reinhardt has ordered is that he gives the government till Thursday of this week, August 25th, to file under seal a submission addressing possible redactions and providing any additional evidence or legal argument the government believes relevant to the pending motion to unseal. So basically, we'll wait and see about whether and to what extent ultimately we do have an unsealed affidavit, which would tell us really whether this was a pure fishing expedition or whether there's any merit to this operation. Uh, last but not least, and there are several other leaks, of course, from the DOJ about what were in these documents that were collected by the government. A really great argument put forth in the Wall Street Journal that I'd urge everyone to check out from former DOJ and White House lawyers David Rifkin and Lee Casey make a compelling case that the Trump warrant itself was unlawful. 
with the Presidential Records Act actually trumping the statutes that were put forth to justify this raid. Uh, but last but not least, lawyers for President Trump really in their first action since the raid went into court and called for the court to appoint a special master not connected to the case who would be tasked with inspecting the records recovered from Mar-a-Lago to set aside those covered by executive privilege, which the DOJ had rebuffed Trump's lawyers for when they asked outside of court. So a number of revelations here. I go back to my 30,000 foot view, which is that while we have all these interesting legal issues, and they're more interesting than legal issues, I mean, they're more substantive than that, but academic disputes over documents, declassification, what laws the president may or may not be subjected to, executive privilege, et cetera, that all of this is kind of a distraction from the main thing, which is that this was a fishing expedition on its own terms based upon what was called for in that warrant. And the president essentially is being treated as a civilian in possession of sensitive documents who is below the law, precisely because this is about one more leg in the perpetual effort to destroy him. And now, of course, as I suggested in a prior episode, and I've written about at the Epic Times, to cast those who criticize, criticize the regime's acts as terrorists and persecute them, if not prosecute them. So with all that laid out on the table, I'd love to turn it over to the group for reaction in terms of executive privilege or any of the other issues at play here on the merits or the broader 30,000 foot issues at play. I'll be quick. So uh, effectively, none of the questions that we have rightfully had for the past couple of weeks are answered to date. And it's not obvious to me that an unsealing of most of the affidavit, you know, with maybe some very minor redactions for witness protection purposes, things like that. It's not obvious to me that that unsealing would answer most of our questions, but it is the only necessary thing to do at this juncture. I, I did a TV hit last week, and they kind of pair me up with this Democratic Party kind of uh, talking head figure, and like he was basically trying to take the DOJ's position. And my basic point was, for for purposes of comedy and like quite literally to try to to restore calmness, people are rightfully really 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 pissed off about this. There's just no other way to say it, and they have every right to be pissed off about this because it bears all of the hallmarks of a political of a political persecution of a of a witch hunt of, of all of that. And the only way to possibly try to tamp and quell down that at this point is transparency. So I, I think that's the only option at this point. I, I will just note briefly. Um, on the one hand, I'm happy to see the Trump lawyers call for an independent review. 28 U.S. Code subsection 455A very clearly says that a justice, judge, or magistrate shall, not may, but shall recuse himself when his impartiality may be questioned. This magistrate back in June in the Trump versus Clinton civil lawsuit saw, you know, saw fit to recuse himself. Why didn't he do so when this unprecedented pre-dawn criminal raid? We have no idea. The only final thing I'll very quickly add is that I, I do think the Trump legal team actually probably could have gone even a little further in asserting Article Two Commander in Chief Clause uh, Art, Article Two Commander in Chief Clause constitutional plenary power to just declassify full stop period end of story whatever it wants whenever it wants. So I didn't think they actually went as far as they could have, but you know, it's a step in the right direction. Um, to to back up the notion that this is a fishing expedition, it's how the warrant itself is written. Um, and and so the criminal piece of this allegedly right is is the potential for classified documents now josh just pointed to the constitutional problems with that but that's like the the underlying basis for this um the warrant is written in such a way where uh, not only of course as once federal agents enter mar-a-lago they can you know toss the place and look wherever they want including melania's closets right um this is like standard this is actually standard once there is this kind of raid um that part of it isn't in, in itself unusual um 
but the, the way the word's written, it's if they find a single classified document, and remember, not just like super, 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 super classified, I don't know the, the echelons of classification, but anything that is um, at all classified in any of these boxes, uh, the warrant allows them to take and examine not just the document, the box that, that it was in, all adjoining boxes. Um, so the warrant is written exactly to, to um, you know, allow this kind of extremely broad, basically tossing the former president's home for evidence uh, of any kind of crime. It is very much a fishing expedition looking for a crime, which again, adds up to uh, the reason that people are so angry about this, the reason that the four of us have been so angry about this, um, and, the, and the reason this is so dangerous to the public. It, it very much looks like they just are sure, just like they were back in, in during the Russia hoax days, that you know President Trump has committed some kind of crime. And if they can just find a pretext to either you know to tap his phones or to toss his house, um, that they're going to find the evidence after the fact of what they they are are looking for. And that that's increasingly what this looks like. It's very reminiscent of the Russia hoax days, um, it, even though it feels like those were forever ago. They're so recent, but this weekly um, cycle of this is the one thing that is going to take Donald Trump down, and it even it's, it even calls back like the the fifteen the twenty fifteen primary race, um, when every week we were told that the major thing that is going to destroy Donald Trump's ability to ever be president is uh, right under our noses. It's here. This is it. Um, but it creates this drip drip, and it's. A is very intentional about the midterms. Um, it's 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 very intentionally it's very intentionally what they're doing uh, to keep the this in the conversation so that it gives less airtime to inflation. It gives less airtime to different issues that are very harmful for Democrats. It keeps this looming shadow of Donald Trump over the head of every single Republican candidate who, as there are developments now in the FBI raid news cycle, have to talk about that, which Democrats would much rather have them talking about than inflation, um, gas prices, national security, the border, any of those other issues um, that you, you can just obviously see the politics of it. Um, and, and it just continues to be hilarious that this is not even the Presidential Records Act violation that we suspected, um, but an Espionage Act violation. An Espionage Act violation is what we learned last week. I mean, just absolutely unbelievable how corrupt, um, sadly, our intelligence community has been and how it has been sort of uh, just corrupted by partisan ends. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, it seems to have gone to another level at this point. And let's not forget, this was originally about nuclear weapon related documents. And now they're leaking that it's about letters to Kim Jong-un and Barack Obama's letter to Donald Trump on the way out of the White House. So the leaks will continue, the same playbook unfolding right before our very eyes. Uh, and this also kind of calls to mind the Declaration of Independence, where they talk about sending out hordes of officers to harass people and eat out the public substance. And that's perfect transition into Inez's segment talking about the 87,000 IRS officers poised to be sicked on the public and harass all of us. So with that, I'll turn it over to Inez. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, this is this is part of the laughably named um, inflation reducing inflation act, right? Uh, apparently, we're going to reduce inflation by hiring eighty seven thousand um, new IRS agents. Now, the media is pr uh, pronouncing this over and over again, including outlets like Reuters. It is basically a right wing conspiracy theory. They're focusing on the idea of them being armed. Of course, forty five more than forty five billion from that eighty billion that is going to be designated for enforcement. Um, you know that that's that's 
armed agents, ultimately enforcement means um, armed agents, at least 4,000 of those um, uh, new agents will probably be uh, affiliated with the criminal investigations division. Um, and, and again, the media pretends this is all like a right wing conspiracy theory, even though it's out in the open in the bill, um, which which I'm sure Emily will have something to say about because it's just a repetition of, of a pattern basically saying don't believe your lying eyes don't believe what you read in the bill uh just believe us uh, believe believe the media uh, that this is this is just a right-wing talking point um so it is not so let's start with that uh, of course the larger worry here is uh donald trump's strongest argument uh, has always been they're coming after me because they want to come after you right and that's something that ben has hammered home over and over again um, the, the the larger worry here is with political um, administration of of criminal law right um coming from from this administration up to and including irs agents um and and i at this point i really don't see any reason um i, I realize that and i don't think that folks here will disagree but um you know I, I think a lot of folks sometimes in the middle still think this sounds like hyperbole and i myself would have found it hyperbolic i think you know five years ago uh, but i think there's very little reason to doubt that this will be that the political persecution and selective political um, these agents will be applied to going after people who say things the regime doesn't like um and and i, I don't see given the first two segments we just had here i don't really see any reason why that is outside of the question or not even and likely um and and let's not forget the irs does have a history of going after um the the administration's political opponents it already did that uh in, in the 2010s with the tea party it was already selectively investigating and pulling um tax exempt status from groups uh and these are you know literally i mean the tea party were literally bands of like um you know local business owners and concerned citizens they were not a, a especially in the beginning um when this was this targeting was happening they were not like you know sort of large politically organized opposition and literally the irs was uh, essentially auditing the status of um of these these little groups uh because their their politics or their names of their groups sounded like uh, groups that the obama administration would not like um and and that's that's really the the, the very real fear here um, with these IRS agents, it's not just that we're spending more money or hiring more government employees, it's that they will be politically weaponized against people who speak out or disagree with the uh, preferred po political perspective of the regime. And I, I, I'm sorry to be um, sort of talking about this country in that way, but I don't see any other, any other uh, reason why that should be uh, not the assumption going forward, given the events not only of this week, but of the last five years. Yeah, I mean, I, I I I agree. I don't really know um, how much um, else to add, to be honest with you. But like, I, this is genuinely harrowing stuff, right? So on the one hand, I, I was, you know, it's funny. I was some of this with a with a friend here recently. If you go back to the early American Republic, there actually like is something to be said for these old kind of on horseback tax agents riding out into the frontier into Daniel Boone country to kind of collect their levies, because at the at the end of the, at the end of the day. We kind of really want to think about it. I mean, a tax law is only ultimately as useful as the wrong side of a gun. I mean, that's kind of just crass politics in general, right? Any law is ultimately as useful as the wrong side of a gun. But having said that, you know, uh, I, I, adding to the IRS force in this fashion, I think it's like more than doubling the size of it, right? I mean, add, adding 87,000 to a baseline that is even under 87,000, like literally why? 
I mean, I, I, what reason can they possibly give as to why they need this this many agents? And, you know, Fox News has, has rightfully been talking a lot recently about how the IRS seems to have kind of surreptitiously added kind of on a job description on the IRS agent's website about having to be proficient with firearms. Well, you know, what was maybe necessary back in the frontier days, back in the Daniel Boone days, probably is not necessary anymore. Um, so, I, I mean, those tactics uh, – for many myriad reasons, really just don't apply to tax collection and the realities thereof in the 21st century. So yeah, I mean, I am I am very terrified. And I we live in a two-tier system of justice system in this country. There is a war on wrong thing, the likes of which Ben has been highlighting on this podcast for the better part of a year and a half now. And I, I think the people on our side of, of the political spectrum have every, every reason, unfortunately, tragically, perhaps, to be fearful of the possible political weaponization of this IRS agent task force. You know, the night of the Mar-a-Lago raid, the governor of my state, uh, Ron DeSantis, in his tweet about it, he, he directly connected, actually, in the very same tweet where he decried the raid at Mar-a-Lago by capital T, the capital R regime, he then had a second sentence referring to the 87,000 new IRS agents. He directly connected those two topics. And I think that we have every right to connect those two topics as well. So it, they kind of seamlessly go together in my mind. You know, it, to me, it's almost worse because it's just this just rank incompetence, um, basically, that's going to come from the IRS. They they have had their budget cut, um, and they are they, they claim they're too small to be able to get enough um, to, to perform enough audits on high earners who have the resources to make those audits very costly for the IRS to make sure that the wealthiest Americans are paying their fair share. Um, but actually, that's there's no way that they're going to raise the amount of money uh, that they say they're going to be able to raise if they hire, um, if, if they increase the size of the IRS. And so we actually don't know how many technically how many agents will be hired. We know that this is like personnel in general, um, and kind of a small, you know, fraction of the IRS's employees are, are agents, um, which is wild. I mean, it's just this massive, it's, it's basically like, like it's huge and all powerful. Um, and what we do know though, is that audits will inevitably increase on the middle class. We know that the IRS makes tons and tons and tons of mistakes. Um, those mistakes are incredibly costly for middle-class families who have to fight those battles, often who have to hire representation to fight those battles, who have to take time out of their busy lives um, where they're working and, and raising their families to fight those battles. And of course, in any American institution right now, politicization um, and the weaponization of those those federal institutions based here in Washington, D.C. is a huge threat that looms over everything. So I agree with everyone, but I'm also like so depressed in general by our inability to function as a country. And I think this really speaks to to that. It's like this. All we do is throw money in our problems um, instead of optimizing our our government to to work better for the American people instead of making a tax cut code that works better. We're throwing money at the IRS. I mean, it's just absurd and um, a good in, a good window or a good glimpse at how poorly we function right now. Well, I guess one thing I'll say, taking a historical view of this is if the government still raised most of its revenues from tariffs, then we wouldn't be having this issue of a potentially hyper-politicized and weaponized IRS pursuing all of us and our friends 
and on top of that, we'd have a much smaller government because it'd be taking in a lot less revenue than having this whole income tax regime withholding, et cetera. Uh, just one thing about this that I've felt from the beginning stepping back is think about what they're doing here. They're taking tens of billions of our tax dollars to hire people to try to bilk us of more of our dollars. That And now granted, the government has monopoly on force. It does. But that is just an absurd premise to be operating from in the first place. It's amazing that anyone who supports that doesn't get voted out of office on simply that basis alone. Setting aside that, I also just want to point out a little bit of the administration's chicanery on this issue. So administration officials, namely Janet Yellen, has tried to allay fears that this is going to be about trying to bilk the middle to upper middle class of their dollars by saying, and I quote directly here, and this is from a letter to the IRS commissioner from Yellen, specifically, I direct that any additional resources, including any new personnel or auditors that are hired, shall not be used to increase the share, the share of small business or households below the $400,000 threshold that are audited relative to historical levels. This means that contrary to the misinformation, of course, it's probably dangerous misinformation from opponents, hence why they need to be armed. From opponents of this legislation, small business or households earning $400,000 per year or less will not see an increase in the chances they are audited. Think about how deceptive that statement is. The share of audits. But if audits are going to increase by 10% or 20% or 30% or 50%, of course, if you make $400,000 or less or have a small business, you're going to be more likely to be audited because more people in your bracket are going to be audited. So it's all about rates instead of the total number. So they're so dishonest around every aspect of this. I mean, I guess the question that I would say is, why wouldn't you expect them to weaponize and hyper-politicize the IRS against us when they've done it before and now armed with tens of thousands of more people in personnel, desperate to try to get more money out of people and shut up and chill their political opponents? I mean, does anyone remember Lois Lerner? Does that name even like ring a bell in our political discourse at this point? I mean, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, we just there's just zero gonna, reason. If you don't if you don't stop saying the word Lord Lois Lerner, I'm gonna go on a rant. So I don't think we have <laughs> It is a travesty that she did not go to jail. And that's why we get this. Uh, it just continues the injustice. On that note, let's let's turn it over to Emily to talk about our future Chinese Communist Party overlords. <laughs> our, our current Chinese Communist Party current. overlords actually via the most popular social network um, in the country, one that we spend uh, collectively in just an incredible amount of time on hours a day. Um, and for, for individuals, for young people, um, for people of voting age, not just young people, but also adults, um, the, the connection between TikTok and the Chinese Communist Party has been uh, made, and I know we've talked about it here. Folks probably realize that TikTok is owned by a Beijing-based company called ByteDance. Um, that's the parent company. TikTok has been engaged in this public relations campaign to say they have distanced themselves as much as possible from ByteDance. Oracle, just as of last week, is conducting regular audits of their algorithms. Their data is now being routed into the Oracle cloud. Um, so they have been embarking on Project Texas which is their uh, their attempt to separate ByteDance from TikTok. 
However, um, we know that because ByteDance is in control of TikTok, uh, ByteDance admitted as much uh, to Congress in a letter recently um, that they have power over TikTok, that they will have hiring power over TikTok, that they will have um, restricted, that's their word, uh, but restricted access to TikTok data as they see fit. We also know that ByteDance is staffed by members of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, we know as of uh, just this month, Forbes reported that there's 50 people working for ByteDance and TikTok right now who 300 people in total but who are currently working for Chinese or have worked for Chinese state media I mean absolutely stunning so with all of that established TikTok rolled out an elections center uh, just last week, had a press release that boasted about it. They were working with Ballotpedia, the National Association for Secretaries of State, a government organization um, that actually works to make sure veterans can vote um, and, and people currently serving, actually it's people currently serving overseas can vote and that's obviously important work. But why American institutions are cooperating with TikTok on this is absolutely confounding, mind boggling. It's just like a slow motion train wreck that we're watching happen. The reason this is a threat is because if you go to TikTok's election center, you put in your state and you say you're interested in voting. That means it goes into essentially what could be a voter profile. All of the data on that user, all of the political content uh, that they like, that they follow, um, if it leans left, if they're, you know, the, if they are, a Bernie person, if they're, let's say, down to the state level, down to the zip code level, if they're hypothetically, as I wrote in The Federalist just today, Tuesday, as we're taping, say they're in Arizona and they, uh, you know, registered to vote on TikTok or they, they clicked register to vote on TikTok and went to an outside site. Well, TikTok not, now knows that this person who watches a lot of conservative content in Arizona, um, they can send messages that might, or they can send them videos that might depress turnout for Blake Masters. So what if they just feed the algorithm to likely conservative voters in Arizona, a bunch of negative stuff about Blake Masters um, or a bunch of stuff that might depress turnout. Alternatively, they can do stuff that will increase turnout for Mark Kelly. And so we're just putting, uh, we're sleepwalking into like this incredible gift to a hostile foreign power. We are just willingly giving it up. Our institutions are bragging about their cooperation with them. They're endorsing uh, this effort. And what's incredible is that like, yes, this is a hypothetical, right? Like we don't know that China is going to use this data, although by law, ByteDance has to give them access to it. Uh, that's a Chinese law. By law, they have to have access to that data if they ask for it. We wouldn't know if they had requested it unless that leaked for some reason or the Chinese government announced it or ByteDance announced it for some reason. We wouldn't know. But what's amazing is that like, yes, that's a hypothetical, but we are trusting and just hoping and trusting that a hostile foreign power um, won't use this information. They could, you know, invade Taiwan tomorrow. Again, hypothetically, they could invade Taiwan tomorrow and uh, have this switch over an incredible flow of information to the American public. So whether TikTok was owned um, and operated wholly by American entities, I think it would still be enormously destructive. We've talked here about how they have all the power to manipulate public thought in the same, in the same way that Facebook does with Instagram or Facebook. Um, and you know, TikTok is now saying they're going to police election misinformation via this election center too. I mean, there's just so much wrong here. Social media has put way too much power in the hands of you know, unelected technocrats in Silicon Valley. It is addictive, it is destructive, it is destroying our brains. 
But TikTok has all of those problems and this huge national security problem. Uh, so I'll toss it open to the group with that. I've ranted long enough, even though it's like it's very basic, but it's also super convoluted because uh, TikTok has you know taken public steps to make it seem as though everything is just peachy. So I, uh, I look, I, I'm not sure how much I have to add. I, what, what I will quickly say is I was recently at um, a pro-life summit. I guess that's public. I was speaking at it out in Wyoming, and um, it was intended for state lawmakers. And, you know, there was a panel about social media, and one of the state lawmakers kind of asked uh, the panelists about their thoughts on, on, on using TikTok as a vehicle for advancing the message. And, you know, the, the panel was a little more mixed, but I was sitting there like squirming. I was like, are, are we seriously having this discussion right now? I mean, like it is like a very conservative, like pro-life state lawmaker really talking about using TikTok. I, I, I mean, a de facto wing of the Chinese Communist Party to advance that message there. I, I think Emily's broader point is also well taken about how TikTok is really no different than the Google search algorithms or the Facebook search algorithms or the Twitter kind of retweet and shadow banning algorithms as far as like what they're choosing to highlight and not. It's really kind of the same the same suite of policy remedies that normally get kind of trotted out, whether it's Section 230, common carry regulation, antitrust, or some combination thereof. You know, in theory, even if TikTok were an American company, those same remedies probably would apply in some mishmash, amalgamation fashion to TikTok. But the reality is it's not an American company. It really is um, effectively Chinese spyware. And for the life of me, I, I, I just can't abide by the fact that we just talk about TikTok in, in present discourse so casually without reminding ourselves every single sentence that what you put on TikTok, you might as well just be sending on a, on a postcard to Beijing. And our policymakers really ought to be acting appropriately to that. And I, I just, I, I'm kind of baffled, honestly. I'm a, I, I guess, I, I, guess I, sh I, I guess I shouldn't be baffled. I mean, we all should be that jaded, but I, I, I really am on this particular one kind of baffled that there has not been a stronger policy backlash to date. Well, I, I think one of the reasons that's so is because TikTok really is the future of social media, something similar to, and, and actually it's no longer really social media um, so much as, so I mean, my, my first thought is all of this sounds uh, quite like international interference into an election that maybe would warrant uh, the kind of <laughs> investigation. Uh, certainly more worrying than like $150,000 of Facebook ads purchased by Russia. Um, just throwing that out for, for comparison there, but I mean, TikTok really is like the fennel of algorithms. Um, and it also represents a transition away from, uh, the reason I, I hesitate over the word social is because it's not truly social anymore. Um, and to the extent that we already have, you know, sort of isolation issues, atomization issues, um, especially among younger users of, of quote unquote social media, those things are going to get so much worse when it's it's actually passive scrolling um, of strangers content, right? So it's no longer even something like Twitter um, or, or you know the ancient dinosaur Facebook or um, where you're interacting with people and often interacting repeatedly with the same users. I mean, digital friends are better than no friends at all. Um, TikTok is essentially like TV, it's passive, except it's like mainlined whatever niche interests the algorithm is extremely precise um and and obviously that's all perhaps secondary to the the um, international implications but perhaps not um and it underscores that TikTok is probably you know the kind of product that warrants societal scrutiny and perhaps regulation even aside from the international um consequences or the international ties because um 
frankly, it's it's it all of all the worries that we have about um, again people you know a larger and larger percentage of young people saying they don't have any person outside of their family to whom they can talk about personal issues or personal problems, right? Th those those kinds of atomization. Um, uh, truly like sort of problems of modernity are going to increase when you don't even have digital friends, right? Um, instead, what you have are a series of content creators that you scroll on the equivalent of TV, except it's like very, very personalized and designed to keep you watching for, for even longer. So um, I think it's the sort of product we should be worrying about regardless of the, uh, the ties to CTP. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, all joking aside, there really is, I mean, certainly based upon the standard of foreign election interference that invokes all sorts of national security threats and potential for law enforcement and intelligence action. I mean, this is purely a potential election, foreign interference in our election threat that we ought to be grappling with. Instead, lawmakers are flocking to TikTok and trying to use it to propagandize. And you know, I think at a fundamental level, I share Josh's uh, sort of demoralized view that it's just ridiculous and asinine that we even have to have the conversation about using a platform that's Chinese Communist Party tied to communicate about anything. I don't care if it's the dumbest videos on earth or if it's about the platforms of candidates and their positions and the like. Uh, it speaks to the level of compromise that we face that this platform could become ubiquitous and that there would not be a substantial backlash really outside what the Trump administration sought to do with respect to TikTok. I also think that this brings to mind a couple of cliches, but which I think do hold here, that you are the product, certainly from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party here, as they're able to collect a whole raft of information and build a profile of Americans and then push content to them that they believe will promote the kind of message that the CCP would ultimately want. And then also the medium here certainly is the message when you consider the control that the medium has over the message and the fact that, again, at an even broader level, this is a Chinese Communist Party tied social media giant. So this raises a whole slew of issues uh, really regarding our ruling classes compromise with respect to Communist China and their inability to see the long-term consequences or maybe unwillingness to care about the long-term consequences of it. But the, the last point I'd make is just, I commend you to read Emily's article because it lays it out chapter and verse, and she's been really dogged on the various ways that the CCP has sought to use its influence in America, particularly in a cultural realm, to compromise us and promote the state's objectives. And yes, of course, the state can collect any and all information it wants under purported national security grounds there. And unfortunately, I think you see our regime moving in a similar direction here as well. So on that note, uh, why don't we jump over to parting shots with whoever wants to kick us off? I'll jump in because I was just before, I was reading the the law actually that Xi Jinping signed about uh, national security and, and data. And I looked at it, I was like, this is the espionage. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not, of course, um, but it, it, they're, they're using the national security grounds to see sort of broad powers over private entities. Um, so that's one thing worth considering. And just thinking about the last two topics in particular, about the IRS and about TikTok, um, it, 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 they, they're actually married, I think, in a helpful way in that it, it speaks to the level of 
decadence in this period that we've entered, right? That we cannot um, collect taxes. Uh, we cannot have a, a tax collection agency with any, you know, nobody has ever trusted tax collectors, but uh, we, we can go way back to, to talking about that. But it, a tax collection agency that is such an incompetent disaster as the IRS. We have almost every teenager in the country, seven out of 10 teenagers using Chinese spyware every single day that is addicting them, making them less healthy, making them less happy. And we can do nothing about it because it's just like, you know, those, those funny memes you see of people trying to sweep up the beach or to, to push back the ocean, right? Uh, like it does not work. Um, and that's where, you know, we, we, instead of trying to fix the tax code instead of trying to um have a more equitable society we're just throwing money at the irs which is going to hurt the middle class or uh with TikTok, it's almost like we just throw our hands up the air and say we can't do anything this is just uh th this is outright decadence and the last thought i'll say is when russia was trying to interfere in the 2016 election um with memes if you go look at those memes they're like trying to divide americans along these social justice lines right like they're pro blm and anti-blm pro trans and anti-trans they love fueling these divides in american culture because they know that those divides are hampering our abilities to perform basic functions it's like the great ryan grimm article over at the intercept where he talked about how all of these left-wing groups have been so hampered by their obsessions with social justice and in very uh, frivolous ways that they can no longer perform their functions that is happening at every american institution and uh, china is feasting on it and they are fomenting it with apps like TikTok. Um, and we are just taking the bait and succumbing to it sleepwalking um, into our own undoing basically so, so I'll, I I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead, Megan. Go ahead. I was just going to be really brief and say, uh, you know, we sort of tongue in cheek talk about the national security law in China, which, by the way, says that if you engage in, you know, sort of dissident rhetoric as a, you know, pro Hong Kong freedom person anywhere in the world, potentially, you can be arrested for violating uh, China's regime of censorship and having to tow its line and you know we're like 100 years behind them essentially in the tyranny that's being enacted here but it still is directionally the same it's you're a national security threat to the regime if you dare to dissent from it and i think uh, this sort of you know parallelism in terms of the way america's ruling regime has gone and china's ruling regime has gone and of course the intertwined nature of our elites uh, shows you how badly our establishment got it wrong in terms of we would make communist China more like them than we would become like communist China. The opposite has, of course, happened. There was a concept of convergence during the, the Cold War, and we really have had convergence subsequent to that war. And the last thing I'd say is just, you know, if there's a theme that also sort of ties together uh, some of these topics that we've covered today, I think it's that it's very clear that, and I wrote something to this effect in a piece about how Mar-a-Lago raid, the backlash to the raid is now going to be exploited to go after those critical of the regime for acting in the very tyrannical ways that we've predicted and that we've seen time and time again. They're poised to prove all of our worst fears about their malevolence, their hostility towards normal Americans and their tyrannical instincts while they claim that their foes are authoritarians. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to dig out from the smoldering rubble that they create here in our republic. So we may be right, but then there's a question of, 
and then what? And I think that's the, the question that we have to be grappling with and we are grappling with here every single week is, given this set of constraints, what is to be done? What is the most prudent thing to do? What is the most consistent thing with our, our deepest and most heartfelt values, principles, and beliefs? But if nothing else, at least we're shining a light on these issues and making it very clear kind of what the stakes are and where the battle lines have to be drawn. And as I want to go in a different direction, so if you're anything related to this, feel free to jump in, if not. Okay. All right. So um, so I, I want to do a little first principles here. I've, I've, I have two points to make. Um, they were both kind of raised earlier in the podcast, but I think they're worth kind of driving home a bit. So Inez earlier in our segment, I, I think it was Inez, um, it was talking about the warrant at Mar-a-Lago and, and how it was very written, very broad sweeping terms there. I just want to emphasize the point that preventing a warrant of this nature is literally why we have a Fourth Amendment of the United States. And I, I I'll be pedantic for a second here. I think it's worth just reading the Fourth Amendment because it so textually highlights this exact point. Quote, the right of the people to be secure in the persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And here's the key part. Quote, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So this notion that you could just get a warrant to go in and kind of, you know, rummage all around the premises, take whatever you want and kind of a fishing expedition and kind of stall in his fashion, obviously, you know, show me the man, I'll find you the crime. You know, the British did that to the colonists. Um, it, it was known as, as, as a, as a so-called general warrant. Ben alluded to this earlier when he was talking about the Declaration of Independence. This was literally one of the American colonists' foremost gripes with King George III and, and, and with the tyrannical acts that ultimately led to, to Lexington and Concord and the American Revolution. I mean, you know, there's a Boston Tea Party. There was a stamp act. We all remember our, our middle school, high school civics. But I cannot describe this point enough. Um, the general warrant of this nature, which, by the way, um, John Eastman actually, after his phone was seized in New Mexico a few months ago, he went on Tucker Carlson's show, and the way that he was describing the warrant that he saw it sounded an awful lot like a general warrant as well. So it's, it's starting to become a recurring theme here. So uh, it's it's entirely possible that holding aside everything else we said, that yeah, what Inez said I think is worth highlighting. This could be just a facial Fourth Amendment violation if it actually is what it sounds like it is. The other first principles point that I want to make here, going to my segment about Liz Cheney. Now, uh, the night that she lost, or maybe it was the next night, Laura Ingram on, on her show did kind of this montage of just Liz Cheney talking on and on and on about democracy, our democracy, our democracy, blah, 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 blah. Um, I, and I did a, a couple of tweets on this earlier this week. I, it's worth just emphasizing the point that democracy is not an end unto itself. You know, Churchill famously said, I'm probably going to uh, mess the quote up, you know, you, you know, it's the it's the what do you say? It's the best, worst form of government or something like that. But democracy is not intrinsically beneficial. It is instrumentally beneficial insofar as we think that more often than other forms of government, it redounds to our ends. Um, you know, our, our producer uh, very helpfully pointed out to me that I did indeed butcher the Churchill quote. It is, it, it is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. So thank you to our handy producer. But the, the point here is that democracy, we think, is instrumentally beneficial insofar as it redounds to the to the actual substantive ends of governance, justice, human flourishing, the common good of the polity, and so forth here. And, you know, in my snarky tweets pointed this out earlier this week, what I basically did was I said, you know, to Liz Cheney and the various other Democrats who are just talking on and on and on about democracy, apparently Barack Obama is hosting some fundraiser in Martha's Vineyard later this month or early next month about how to restore democracy. 
you know, do you people stand with Stephen Douglas over Abraham Lincoln in 1858? Because that literally was Stephen Douglas's chance. That was his stance. His stance was that democracy is an end unto itself. Lincoln came in over the top and said, no, it's not. The actual moral truth of the matter, the underlying substantive question, is whether Black people are actually human beings. That is what answers the question, not some form of governance and kind of popular sovereignty, Western territories fashion. So, you know, I would be really curious to know where Liz Cheney stands on, on the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess... Uh... I agree with everything that Josh said, and but I, I would add that actually uh, it seems to me that the while there are, uh, as Josh says, democracy is not an end into uh, onto itself. Um, th that there, it seems to me that the, the the real vice and problem in our age has been not enough democracy and not too little. Um, that's not always the case. I agree with many of the founders' warnings and and indeed what what Josh is pointing to in the Lincoln Douglas debates um, that there has to be some end to democracy that's higher than, than democracy itself. Um, that being said, I think the problem in the last 30 to 40 years, and, and this is what drives me crazy about the Liz Cheney's of the world, you know, constantly referencing and Obama referencing the end of democracy, right, is that so many of the reforms that they now stand in and call democracy are in themselves anti-democratic, never went through the democratic process, um, either went through the administrative state or through the courts acting well, well beyond um, where where the courts ought to be in terms of, of their role within the republic. So democracy too often, and particularly the phrase liberal democracy is often a stand-in for consensus among elites uh, and, and actually in some ways completely orthogonal or, or even opposite to democracy. Um, before we wrap up, I maybe highlight maybe next week we can talk more about this. Um, that there will be a student loan uh, bailout push from the left. Uh, the pause on student loans will be ending on, on August 31st. It's not yet clear what the Biden administration will do, although they they reporting says they are leaning towards a $10,000 bailout for those making $125,000 a year or less. Um, uh, I'll, I'll go more into this next time we have more time, but uh, generally student loan forgiveness is exactly the, uh, the sort of grift, the, the, um, the payout to the managerial woke class that really is the, the constituency of the Democratic Party, and not even in a democratic sense to tie these two things together, but truly in, in a sort of um, anti-democratic sense that, that, that these folks not only give their votes to the Democratic Party, but they throw the institutions um, in 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 favor of, of the cultural revolution, and that's really what this loan forgiveness um, act is about. Uh, the numbers bear this out that this is not a a um, policy that benefits the working class or even the middle class. It is a policy that benefits the upper middle class. Um, and and so uh, that, that I guess I'll I'll have opportunity to to say more about that later. But um, I do think it's an incredibly important policy, and it especially highlights the fact that Republicans are perfectly happy to continue to fund academia, even as academia is ground zero for uh, this this very intolerant cultural revolution that is spreading out from universities as their center into every other institution. And yet Republicans are still stupid enough to fund it. Well, I will briefly invoke my executive privilege here to say that whenever they raise democracy, they being a ruling regime, uh, they use that to drape themselves in the seeming legitimacy of democracy, but we are a republic and they use our democracy as a stand-in for their power. That is ultimately what it's about. And they will try to seize that power using any and every available means. Never forget when Nancy Pelosi was asked about the constitutionality of Obamacare and she just scoffed about it, but then they will drape themselves in the constitution when they believe it will serve their argument. It's all about their power at the end of the day. 
not about representing the will of the people, let alone the Republican system that they're supposed to be serving. Uh, on that note, on behalf of Josh, Emily, and Inez, I'm Ben Weingarten. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next NatCon Squad. <laughs>